morning, Christ Church. My name is Claire Garvin, and I have served with our middle school ministries and in some of our worship services over the past couple of years. I just want to welcome you guys to the message today, and thank you for tuning in. I think that it's such a blessing that amidst 2020 and amidst everything going on, we can still be scattered together and we can still thrive in community virtually. I hope that this message encourages you, inspires you. I hope that you can take something away from it and welcome. Well, good morning, Christ Church. Welcome to worship. My name is Steve Noble. I have the privilege of serving on our family ministry team here at the church, and I'm delighted to be in worship with you, whether you are joining us online or in the room this morning. We are glad to be in worship together. Now, will you join me in this responsive reading? Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, to him who alone does great wonders. His love endures forever. Who by his understanding made the heavens, who spread out the earth upon the waters, who made the sun to govern the day, the moon and stars to govern the night. His His love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven. His love Let us sing our praise to Almighty God, Creator, Sustainer, and Redeemer of all creation.
will you join me in a word of prayer? Almighty God, you love us, but we have not loved you. You call, but we have not listened. We walk away from neighbors in need, wrapped in our own concerns. We condone evil, prejudice, warfare, and greed. God of grace, help us to admit our sin. So as you come to us in mercy, we may repent, turn to you, and receive forgiveness through Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. Amen. Well, friends, hear the good news as we confess to God who is in a position to condemn us only Christ, and Christ has died for us, Christ rose for us, Christ reigns in power for us, Christ prays for us. Friends, believe the good news of the gospel that your sins are forgiven.
God of heaven and earth. Through Jesus Christ, you promise to hear us when you, we pray to you in his name. Confident in your love and mercy, we offer our prayer. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Empower the church throughout the world, Lord, in its life and witness. Break down the barriers that divide, that united in your truth and love, the church may confess your name, share one baptism, sit together at one table, and serve you in one common ministry, Lord, in your mercy. Hear our prayer. Hear the cries of the world's hungry and suffering. Give us who consume most of the earth's resources the will to reorder our lives that all may have their rightful share of the food, medical care, and shelter, and so have the necessities of a life of dignity. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Renew our nation in the ways of justice and peace, Lord. Guide those who make and administer our laws to build a society based on trust and respect, erase prejudices that oppress, free us from crime and violence, loose the bonds of systemic injustice rooted in our communal sin and greed, give all citizens a new vision of a life of harmony in Louisville, Chicago, and throughout America. Lord, this morning we mourn with the city of Louisville as they mourn the unjust killing of Breonna Taylor. Lord, we mourn also the loss of life and the unrest of the last couple days in that city. Grant us wisdom as we pursue justice and remind us that our ultimate hope is in you, Lord. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Strengthen, Lord, this congregation in its work and worship. Fill our hearts with your self-giving love that our voices may speak your praise and our lives may conform to the image of your Son. Nourish us with your word and sacraments that we may faithfully minister in your name and witness to your love and grace for all the world. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Lord, look with compassion on all who suffer. Support with love those suffering with disease, those unjustly imprisoned, those denied dignity, those who live without hope, those who are homeless or abandoned as you have moved towards us in love. So lead us to be present with them in their suffering in the name of Jesus Christ, Lord, in your mercy. Hear our prayer. Lord, sustain those among us who need your healing touch. Make the sick whole, give hope to the dying, comfort those who mourn, uphold all who suffer in body or mind, not only those that we know and love, but those known only to you, that they may know the peace and joy of your supporting care, Lord, in your mercy. Hear our prayer. And now we pray as your son taught us to pray, Lord, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Well, amen. Friends, as we continue together in worship this morning, I have just a few notes for you. As you maybe can tell, we are beginning to slowly open both of our campuses to in-person worship. And so um, we are so thrilled if you're joining us online, and if that's what you're most comfortable with, we want to encourage you to keep doing that. Um, But if you are comfortable coming back to one of our worship services here at Oak Brook or at Butterfield, we would love to invite you to do so. If you're interested in, in joining us in person, please please go to Christchurch.us where you can find more information on how to register um, as well as information on the many safety protocols that we have put in place in order to keep our church family safe. We also have limited children's ministry available at our Oak Brook campus. And so if you're interested in bringing your, your child up to age um, or fifth grade, um, we would love for you to do so. Please register by 9 a.m. on Friday morning um, so that we can get our children's ministry team prepared for our kiddos. Um, if you are interested in joining us next week, registration will open today at noon. So check out the website in order to do that. Next week, we'd love for you to join us for World Communion Sunday as we as Christ Church join with the body of Christ around the world at the Lord's table to celebrate the sacrifice that our Lord Jesus Christ made for us. And so if you do join us in person, we will have um, safe little individually packaged cups for you so that we can partake of communion um, in the most safe way. Um, And if you're joining us online, please uh, feel free to join us with a cup of juice or wine and some bread so that you can join us in that way as well. Well, friends, something that I have been most impressed by um, at Christ Church in the years that I've been here is our church's heart for young people. I, I continue to be absolutely floored by how much our church supports and cares for children and students in our body. Uh, we kicked off our student ministry um, programming for the school year uh, this month, and we have some 30 small groups meeting all over the western suburbs with 75 adult mentors, and all of that is possible. A little glimmer of normalcy for our students is possible because our congregation supports our students so generously with your, your giving in order to support our ministries and your giving of your time to mentor our students. We are grateful for you. So as a member of our our family ministry team, I want to say thank you. And as we transition into a time of worship through our generosity, I want you to be encouraged knowing that you are making a difference. Let's give to God his tithes and our offerings.
Well, good morning and welcome to Christ Church. My name is Pete Stearns and I work with Steve on our family ministries team here at Christ Church. I am so thankful that you have joined us, whether it is on live stream or here in our congregation. Uh, we are so thankful that as a church, in the midst of the chaos of our world, we are able to place Christ as our foundation. Well, over the past few weeks, we have been studying a fairly familiar story. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. And each week, we have been tackling a few elements or characters of this story and asking ourselves how in our current context might we resonate with the implications that come with each element of the story. Well, today we continue by looking at the priest and the Levite. When I was growing up, one of my favorite things to do was uh, to go to the movie theater with my family. We would all pile into the car and head off to uh, watch a film together. My favorites were always adventure stories, whether it was Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, or Disney classics like Aladdin. But the best part of going to a movie for me as a child was after it had concluded, loading back into the wood-paneled minivan, sitting all the way in the back seat because I was one of the younger kids in my family, and resting my head against that side window and imagining that I was a part of the story. You see, I loved daydreaming about what it might be like to be one of those heroes. What it would be like to be the ring bearer on a great journey and a mission. What it would be like to, to find out that I had the force and I could grow into a Jedi or, or what it might be like to ride on a magic carpet. But you see, I, I always imagined myself as the protagonist. In my daydreams, I always tended to gravitate towards those whom fought for good rather than those who fought for evil. You see, this makes sense, but unfortunately, I find that this is oftentimes the exact same way that I read my scriptures. As I read stories of David and Goliath, I am always the underdog picking out stones for my sling. I am never the giant that stands menacingly before a group of believers. In Daniel and the lion's den, I'm always Daniel standing amongst the lions. I am never the leaders of that country that send him there because of their hypocrisy. You can see how this would be particularly troubling as we tackle the story of the Good Samaritan. Because as we have learned a little bit in this series and we will continue to learn, it is fairly unlikely that Jesus intended us to read this story as if we were the Good Samaritan. In fact, Jesus goes out of his way to choose a character that would be so unrelatable that none of the listeners of that day would want to resonate with them, let alone assume that they were that character. 
And so as we read this story, we too must begin to ask ourselves who it is that Jesus intends for us to relate with. And unfortunately, I think the likelihood is that we are called to see ourselves in the shoes of the Levite and the priest. You see, the Levite and the priest are particularly challenging for us because as a 21st century American church, we have a tendency to vilify the religious leaders of the Jewish people. And you see, rightfully so. As we study the gospel narrative, it seems to be that the Pharisees are always standing on the wrong side of the equation. It is the Pharisees, after all, that condemn Jesus and send him to the cross. But we know from Scripture that it's actually our sin that sends Jesus to the cross. And so as we study the lives of the priest and the Levite, we need to begin to reconcile how these people could commit such atrocities and how Jesus calls us to recognize ourselves as these characters. You see, the crowd that Jesus was talking to would not have seen a priest and a Levite as a villain. Instead, a priest and a Levite would have been a picture of the moral good. They would have been characters that, that this crowd would have wanted to equate themselves with. They were active in the life of the temple and synagogue. They participated in, in the religious sacraments. They were known for upholding the law. And so as this crowd listened to their story, the assumption would be that they would immediately assume that these are generally good people. These are people that I want to be like, which is why their response becomes even more shocking. We open today to Luke chapter 10, verses 31 and 32. It's fairly brief and straightforward. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. You see, we know that a Jewish man has been walking down this road, and he has succumbed to an attack. He is now left for dead on the side of the road at the mercy of whoever happens to pass him by. And so as the listeners of Jesus' parable hear this story, the assumption is that the second they hear that a priest is coming, they breathe a sigh of relief. Phew, this will be the neighbor to the man on the side of the road. This will be the person that upholds the greatest commandment to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. But the priest walks by. So too, the Levite leaves him there to die. Now, if we are intended to see ourselves as these characters, then we must reconcile their apparent apathy with our own desire to do good in this world. 
If the priest and the Levite are, in fact, not horrible villains, but instead are generally well-regarded good people, then how can they justify walking past somebody breathing their last breaths? You see, Jesus doesn't tell us exactly why they have made this decision, but today I would like to make three assumptions. Three assumptions that would have led to justifiable reason for leaving this man to die, and three assumptions that I find resonate very closely with my own apathy. The first assumption that I want to dive into is this understanding that, that perhaps the Levite and the priest saw the man there and assumed that he was dead. We're familiar with the story. In fact, in Sunday school, we probably heard that, that the priest and the Levite were active in participating in the religious sacraments of the day. And in order to participate in the religious sacraments of the day, you must find yourself clean before God. And to be clean before God, you must not come in contact with a corpse or a dead body. Because if you come in contact with a dead body, you would then be unclean for seven days. And so it seems reasonable to assume that these good people walk by the man on the side of the road because they assume he is dead. They are off to do their own good works. They are going to be participating in the religious sacraments of the day. And if he is dead, then there is nothing they can do. And if they do tend to try to help him, then they will be disqualified from the other good things they are trying to do in their life. You see, I can resonate with this. Because I find that more often than not, we justify our inaction based on our perceived inability to provide help. If, in fact, this man is dead on the side of the road, what are the priest and the Levite to do? What is it that they can do to lend a hand to a dead man? The reality is there is nothing. And so they move along on the other side of the road hopeful to continue in their participation of the good things that they have entered into the habit of doing. Well, you see, I find myself commonly using this justification in my life. There are certain evils in this world that I would assume that we could come to a strong consensus surrounding I think about the reality that today there are more people enslaved than there have ever been in the history of our world. And I would guess that if we polled our entire congregation, each and every one of us would say that is a grave injustice. We are all familiar with the child sex trade. And abhorrent circle of evildoers that sell children here in our own country and around the globe, and I imagine that none of us find ourselves thinking that maybe that's an okay behavior. 
We have seen and we know that there are children that are taken from their homes and conditioned to be child soldiers. I cannot imagine that any of us are okay with that. Yet, I ask myself, what am I doing to help these children? What am I doing to plead the case of the slave? And the answer is, not a whole lot. Why? Because I don't even know where to start. What can I do living here in the western suburbs of Chicago? What can I do to impact those that are impacted and, and, and hurt in the darkest corners of our world? I assume to myself, there's someone else that knows what to do. There's someone else, surely, that is equipped to address these problems. And once they address them and they tell me how I can help, then, then sure, I'll participate. But until then, I justify my inaction on the basis of my perceived inability to make an impact. Now, that's kind of at a global level. But, but at a more personal level, I think about those instances in which a friend has approached me and they've shared with me about their mental illness, perhaps their addiction, their loss of life, their marital struggle. And as soon as they begin sharing about that brokenness in their life, I kind of close down and think to myself, why did you have to say this right now? I don't know what to say. I don't have the words for you. And whether consciously or subconsciously, we find ourselves distancing ourselves from that friend. Why? Because we don't have the answers. Surely someone else in their life knows how to respond in this moment, and it's not me. And so we leave them on the side of the road believing wholeheartedly that someone else will stand by their side and that, in fact, they are better off without my advice. But you see, this is clearly a myth because we know from Scripture that it is not I that works, but it is God through me. And we can rest assured that if God lays the robbed man in our path, he has given us the ability to do something. If God has convicted our heart, if God has placed in front of us brokenness, then we are called as kingdom people to seek restoration and reconciliation. And so we can no longer justify our inaction if we truly believe in a God that performs miracles and can do greater things than we could possibly imagine. But you see, it's possible that this is not the assumption that the priest and the Levite made walking past this man. It's possible that they saw him and they knew that he was still alive. They knew that there was something they could do to help him, and yet still they chose not to. You see, we've studied this in the past couple of weeks, but, but the Jericho Road was a road that was notoriously dangerous. It was a road known to 
house villains and robbers, to be a hideaway of the scum of the earth, a place in which it was a frequent occurrence that caravans of people would be beaten, abused, and robbed, and left for dead. And so it is possible that the priest and the Levite saw the man there and thought to themselves, how irresponsible is it that this man chose to walk this dangerous road by himself? What did he think would happen? How could he possibly have been so foolish to embark on this journey? In essence, he made his bed, now it's time for him to lay in it. You see, they walked past him because they assumed that he got what he deserved. And why would they put themselves in danger to help this person that had been so clearly reckless in their decision-making? You see, again, we can resonate with this because I find that more often than not, I justify my inaction on the basis of the circumstances of others. On the decisions that others have made, I can justify not responding to their hurt because I can convince myself that that it's the circumstances they entered into that led them to this hurt. You see, this seems to be a common refrain this summer. We have seen as a nation a spotlight that has been shown on racial oppression and systems of racism that run deeply in our own country. And yet, more often than not, it seems that the American church would rather point out all the reasons that this oppression is happening rather than step in to care for those that are being hurt. It seems easier for us to point to behaviors or circumstances that may or may not have led to violence than it is to stand beside someone and people that are hurting, that are broken, that are abused. We would rather point out crime rates. We would rather point out the use of narcotics than to look inwardly and ask ourselves how we might be contributing to these very problems. And so instead of standing by those that are hurt, we turn away and we walk past. This seems to be the narrative that surrounds much of our nation's uh, challenges with sexual abuse. The Me Too movement shown a light on this a few years back. Our propensity as a nation to shame the victim rather than to stand by their side. Well, this person would not have been abused. They would not have been the victim of this crime if they had not been out so late. Well, clearly they were doing something to indicate their interest, weren't they? What did they expect? Well, they dress in a certain way. And so clearly, this is their fault. 
And in doing so, we excuse the abhorrent behavior of the criminal while justifying our inaction on the basis of the circumstances surrounding the victim. Now, I want you to hear me say this. In both cases of of sexual abuse and systemic racism in our country, I believe that these excuses are just that. They're excuses. They're things that we do to allow ourselves to step into a place of apathy, to distance ourselves from the brokenness in front of them. They are not actually real and true justifications. But as believers... We need to respond to the man on the side of the road without considering their circumstances. You see, this passage continues here at the end uh, in verse 36 and 37. Jesus uh, turns to the teacher of the law and says, Which of these do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. You see, the expert of the law can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. And so instead, he points out that the Samaritan was merciful. And you see, this idea of mercy is so important as we think about how as a church we respond to those that are hurt to those that are broken, to those that are oppressed. Because mercy is not conditional. Mercy is not dependent upon the actions that have led up to the pain. Mercy instead offers us something, a great gift, in spite of everything else in our lives. You see, I would not be standing here today if not for the mercy of our Lord and Savior. If Jesus had chosen to determine whether or not he would go to the cross on the basis of the actions of the Jews of that time, the Gentiles of that time, surely he would never have died. But Jesus went to the cross for a crowd of people that hurled insults at him and spat at him even when he hung on the cross for their forgiveness. And it is following after a God that is merciful to us regardless of our circumstance that we are called to respond to the brokenness in our world regardless of what we perceive to be right or wrong action in the life of the victim. We should be a church that is known for our mercy. And when I say a church, I don't mean just Christ church. I mean our global church should be known for stepping in on behalf of those that are broken regardless of what might have happened to lead them to that place. Now, again, this is just an assumption. And it is possible that the priest and the Levite were actually not concerned with the circumstances that had led the man to the side of the road. It's very possible that they saw him there and their hearts ached for him and they wanted to do something for him. 
It's possible that they just felt overwhelmed by empathy for him, but recognized that there was inherent danger in helping him. You see, it was a rather common practice during that day and age for the bandits to leave one person on the side of the road, beaten and abused, so that someone might come along to help them, might lift them up on their own animal or or carry them shoulder to shoulder to safety, and then in turn put themselves in a place of vulnerability so that they too could be attacked and fall victim to a similar fate. And so it is possible that the priest and the Levite saw him laying there, wanted to help him, but thought about their own safety, thought about their own well-being, their own protection, and decided to continue on. I do this all the time. I justify my inaction because of the inherent personal risk to myself or my family. How often Have I heard the plight of the oppressed? And I have have been called to an action to give, to support charities that are doing incredible work around the world. And I've said to myself, you know, I'm on a tight budget. I'm a pastor with a young family. And and if I give right now, that's going to have some serious implications for my comfort. That's going to mean that I'm going to have some difficult conversations about Uh, what it is that's going to need to be cut out of my life. And so I can justify not doing anything by saying right now is just not the right time. Maybe when I hit it big and become a televangelist and fly in my own private jet, then I can give. But right now, this isn't going to work. That's a joke, by the way. My goal is not to become a jet-flying televangelist. But how many of us have done this with our time? We have been asked to step in as a mentor, as an advocate for someone. We've been asked to participate in the life of our church or our community, and we've looked at our schedule and just said, I just can't spare the time right now. Maybe when my kids grow up in 18 years, or more likely now, 27 years, and they move out of the house, I can do something. But right now, it's just not the right time. This is, this is going to mess up my life. And so we do, don't do anything. But I found that actually the place in which I feel the most inherent risk is, is my standing up and advocating for the broken and the abused in circles of my church community. More often than not, when I see instances of injustice, whether it be in the news or in my personal life, I remain silent on my social media. I remain silent in crowds of people because there's just no win for me. I know that if I post something, someone's going to be angry at me. Someone's going to shake their fist at me to tell me I've got it all wrong and to call out my own discernment. And so it's just a whole lot easier not to say anything. Because in remaining silent, I don't ruffle any feathers. 
But you see, if this is our MO as a church, our silence leaves the man on the side of the road. And I say this because I think that as a church, not just this church, but the church in America, we need to do a better job of assuming the best of our fellow believer. We need to do a better job of showing grace in uncertain times. We need to come before others with the assumption of their good intent. And when we see those standing up on behalf of the oppressed, our goal should be to celebrate that as a church, regardless of whether or not it is the way that you would do it, regardless of whether or not it's the appropriate medium for this conversation. Because I'm going to be honest, we're going to do it wrong. We're not going to respond in in the most practical and appropriate way every single time. There are going to be times that we say things that are insensitive, that we say things that offend someone, that we say things that cause other people to question our intent. But as a church, we must show grace and assume the best and to come arm in arm with those people, recognizing that in making an attempt to help the man on the side of the road. We are moving the kingdom of God forward. If we continue as a Christian people, pointing out the flaws of the logic of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, we are promoting a culture of apathy that will leave us without any growth or transformation in this world. I gotta be honest, I felt anxious. I still feel anxious about preaching this sermon today because I know that I've said things that might cause people to feel uncomfortable and I know that I've said things that are probably just straight wrong. But our goal is not to be right all the time. Our goal is to glorify God. Our goal is to model his mercy and his grace in our world. Our goal is to reach out to the least of these because in serving the least of these, we serve our God. And if we had more grace for one another as a church, I can only imagine the exponential growth in God's kingdom. As we think about this story of the Good Samaritan, let us remind ourselves that we are called to envision ourselves as the priest and the Levite. We are unlikely to be the good guy in this story. And instead, we must be challenged to look at our own justifications of apathy and instead call ourselves to empathy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you for this opportunity to come together. Lord, we pray that in the midst of a challenging and chaotic time, that, Lord, we would seek to glorify you first. Lord, that we would seek to show unconditional mercy. And, Lord, that we would show grace to one another when we inevitably fail. Lord, may we be a church that is known 
for our care of the least of these. And may we be a church that is identified not by our silence, but rather by our well-intended mistakes. We pray that you would lead us during this season and that, Lord, we would constantly pursue your glory. We pray this in your name. Amen. Let us receive this benediction that comes to us from the story of the Good Samaritan. Jesus says to us, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus responds to all of us, go and do likewise. Amen. Amen.